0: So I'm excited today because we get to finish our series in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, we've been going through this, uh, I believe, since the month of October. We had some Sundays right where we talked about Christmas and Thanksgiving, and so I'm so excited to kind of get into today's study. Uh, something I didn't announce, but I want to remind you guys: camp is this next weekend. And so if you're in junior high but not going to camp, uh, we hope you get to join us in the summertime for our that that camp. Uh, but we will actually, because we won't be here, we'll be up at camp on Sunday, so you'll be going to combine with the high school. Uh, we'll have um, maybe a leader or two uh, who's staying back, uh, but next Sunday, the junior high room will not be open, and so you'll just be going into the high school room to hear Pastor Shadrach, who you will eventually be with in the future. Today's message is entitled, Compromised, Compromised. Have you guys ever started something very well and finished very badly? Maybe it was a project that you were so excited about but never finished. A paper that you had some enthusiasm about but halfway through you hit writer's block and couldn't go any farther. Or maybe it was a book that you were determined to read but now it just sits on your bookshelf having never been finished. Have you guys ever been motivated to clean? You're like, okay, I'm, you know, my room has been smelling and my mom's been getting mad at me, and so I'm going to clean. And then halfway through, you lose motivation and just shove everything else in the closet. Uh, we've, all, we've all been there. And we have a tendency to do things in this way. Now, within our walk with God, we can go through difficult seasons and have moments of weakness, but we must not compromise And shove everything into the closet, but we must follow through in our commitment to him. We must keep going and press on regardless of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Now, what we find in the next two chapters, right, last week was chapter 10. Uh, Now, obviously, you see chapter 13, so your, your question should be, hey, what about Nehemiah chapter 11 and 12? Well, if you're in chapter 13, you can kind of look through 11 and 12, and what we find there is chapter 11 is essentially a list of names of those who are living within the walls and those who are living outside of the walls. They are listed by family and tribe. And so if you want to note down, Nehemiah 11 is a list of the names of the people of Jerusalem, all right? So there's not a need for us on a Sunday gathering this way to kind of go through the names. Uh, Then in chapter 12, we see another list of names of priests and Levites. Uh, It is followed by a dedication service uh, for the walls that were built. They, They came together and worshiped God. Uh, and and so that kind of brings us now to chapter 13, and so you can note down chapter 11 is a list of the names of those living there, and chapter 12 is a list of the spiritual uh, leaders uh, and uh, a description of the dedication service they had uh, of the walls, and this brings us now to our last and final chapter of the book of Nehemiah. All right, let's pray together. God, we thank you for this time. We pray that you would anoint the Word of God, uh, as we teach it, as we listen to it, uh, as we learn from you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, sweet. So as we get into chapter 13, I want to, before we kind of dive in and, 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 and kind of divide it up, I want to point your attention to verse 6. Verse 6 is the hinge that kind of opens the understanding of the 13th chapter of Nehemiah, of the 13th chapter of Nehemiah. Now, before we dive into this, we need to take special note of Nehemiah's absence. What we are able to gather from this passage is that Nehemiah rebuilds the wall and restores the people and then heads back to the king of Persia, like he said he would, to fulfill his duties As cupbearer. Look at verse six in your Bibles. It says, but during all this, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Then after certain days, I obtained leave from the king. Now, there is some debate on this. Uh, I don't think it translates super well in verse six. Uh, what, What takes place here is that between chapters 12 and 13, It seems that 12 years pass by where Nehemiah is no longer the governor in Jerusalem. That back in chapter 1, we're told that Nehemiah uh, was was found as the cupbearer in the 20th year of the king. Now we have mentioned the 32nd year of the king, which is a 12-year gap. It seems like Nehemiah was faithful to build the walls, to protect the people, to establish the leadership. And then as soon as the city was populated, that Nehemiah heads back to fulfill his duties. And at that point, there is 12 years between chapter 12 and chapter 13. And so Nehemiah goes back. He had never intended to stay, but simply to do a job And he had told the king, I would be back. Uh, And so now the people are left to themselves. Uh, They raise up different leaders. And for a 12-year period, Nehemiah is absent from Jerusalem. And what we'll see for this chapter is that it is a chapter full of compromise. That in his absence, the people started not to fulfill the commitments they had made to the Lord. They compromised in their commitments. Now, this is an application for you and I. When the people who lead over you spiritually are absent, then you find out who you really are. It'll show you where your commitment really lies. Not when your pastor is around or your parents are around, but who are you when the spiritual leadership in your life is absent? Do you follow through with your commitments or do you compromise? Whatever the case may be, your true self is who is revealed. I want you to note down that the Lord desires commitment. Okay? The Lord desires. Okay, so we left off talking about Nehemiah's absence, right? So he leaves for a 12 year period. And it's during that time that the people begin to compromise. And I was illustrating it in a way that for you and I, uh, when the spiritual leaders in our life are absent, then we find out where our commitments really lie. You see, what happens for some people is they grow up in the church. uh, There is an appearance of a commitment to Christ. uh, And then what happens is they turn 18 Uh, they leave the spiritual leadership in their life. So there's an absence, but it's on their part. Maybe they go to college or they move to a different state. And now the spiritual leadership of their pastors, of their leaders, of their parents that was once in their life is no longer there. Now you find out, was their commitment to people or was it to the Lord? The Lord desires commitment. That's what you wanna write down. The Lord desires commitment and Satan desires compromise. God wants commitment, Satan wants compromise. We know that Satan will end up losing the war, but when we compromise, Satan wins the battle. Satan wins the battle. James chapter 1, verse 14 says, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And entice. You see, Satan loves to come alongside us with enticement. That's the idea of bait. Do we have any fishers in here? Anyone that likes to go fishing? Uh, um, Man, if you've ever gone fishing, then you'll know how important, right, bait is. You are trying to lure. You are trying to entice the fish to clamp on. Now, when they do, what do they find? They don't find a delicious meal, right? They find a very spiky hook. And this is kind of how Satan works, is he tries to entice us to compromise. No one, no one you know, w- wakes up one day and says, I want to compromise my walk with God. I just want to, I want to, I, I made a commitment. I just want to walk away from him now. I know that that doesn't happen. It happens by enticement. This word compromise, maybe you are unfamiliar with it. Uh, this is one of the simplest definitions that helps me to understand it. It is to accept standards that, that are lower than desirable. Meaning it is to accept lower standards. That you're saying, ah, like I, I wanted to do this, but you know, that commitment, that was too, that was too high for me. I, I got to give in a little bit. And it's to compromise. It is to make a commitment to higher standards, God's standards, and then to go back on it. You see, sin has the illusion of desirability, but it will lead you lower always, right? You'll eventually, it might taste good at first, but then you'll get the sharp hook in your mouth. And the Christian life is the battle of commitment versus compromise. This is what you will struggle and fight with for the rest of your life a commitment to Christ or a compromise to him, that God has these standards that he wants for our life, not because he is this uh, tyrant king in heaven, but because he knows that the standards for our life that he wants us to live, his commandments are good for us. They're beneficial. And he doesn't want us to compromise for our sake uh, because he doesn't want us to accept something lower. Now, in this final chapter in Nehemiah, We're gonna look, you can note down at four ways the people compromised in their commitments. Four ways that in a 12-year period, right, that they compromised. Nehemiah set them up for success, but we see that as he comes back 12 years later to check on things, see how things are going. Uh, Yes, the walls are still built, but what is happening within the walls is the problem. So let's look at the people's downward spiral of sin as Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem. Let's see what he finds. Well, the first thing that he finds, you can note down in verses four through nine, we're gonna read it. He finds them making room for the enemy. How were they compromising? They were compromising by making room for the enemy and quite literally making room for him. Look there in your Bibles at verse four. Verse 4 says, now before this, Iliashib, the priest, having authority over the storerooms of the house of God, was allied with Tobiah. And he had prepared for him a large room where previously they had stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, the tithes of grain, the new wine oil, which were commanded to be given to the Levites and singers and gatekeepers and the offerings for the priests, and then verse six, we had read, right? But Nehemiah was absent. Then after certain days, I obtained leave from the king. Look at verse seven. And I came to Jerusalem and discovered the evil that Eli- uh, uh, Eliashib had done for Tobiah and preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. And it grieved me bitterly. Therefore, I threw all the household goods of Tobiah out of the room, threw him on the street. Then I commanded them to cleanse the rooms and I brought back into them the articles of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. So what is happening here? Well, we are reintroduced to the high priest named Eliashib. Now, I don't like saying that word uh, because the name is long and it's not one I'm familiar with. So we'll call him Eli, all right? High priest Eli. And he has this authority that was given to him by God. Yet what happens over the next 12 years is he abuses that authority, and he uses it and compromises his standards. We were first introduced to Eli the high priest, if you can remember all the way back in Nehemiah chapter 3. Eli was actually the first one listed in chapter 3 to get on the work of the wall. He was excited. He was the first one. He led the the wall building as Nehemiah's uh, first one to step up and begin to build the wall. Yet here, notice we are told that Eli was allied with Tobiah. Look at verse four. Look at verse four in your Bibles. It says that Eli, the high priest, was allied with Tobiah. Does any remember him? Raise your hand if you remember Tobiah. Tobiah was one of those two guys that we were introduced to, right? Sanballat and Tobiah. He has been an enemy of the work of God since day one. They they blew threats on them, telling them that they're going to tell the king. They discouraged them. Tobiah was part of the gang that just wanted to mess up the work of the wall so that the city never became a city. And we're told that now Eli is allied with him. You can note down this word ally, it it describes a close relationship, right? Not an enemy, it's someone that is closely connected to. Eli was closely connected to someone who was considered an enemy of the work of God. And because of this connection, it wasn't just like they were friends, It speaks of closely connected, even so much so that this word and other parts of the Old Testament are associated with family. Eli considered Tobiah as family. Now, that is one thing, but what that connection led to was compromise. He compromised God's resources that God had given him. We're told here in this passage that God, uh, not God, Eli takes a room in the temple, the house of God, clears it out of the storeroom that was in there. So it stored, we're told, uh, grain, uh, it, it, uh, it uh, stored wine and oil, frankincense. These were different items that were used in the worship of God. And so he says, Hey, let's move this out. And Tobiah, do you want to actually come live here? Uh, we will prepare a room for you. Uh, you can not only live in the walls, but you can live within the central worship location. It would be as if we cleared a room for someone here at the church who was against what God was doing here at the church, uh, was considered uh, an enemy, not because we considered him one, but because he was one. Uh, and, and we said, hey, just come, come stay here. Uh, and let's and you know, hey, the, the music instruments, no, we don't need those. Let's get rid of those. Uh, the storage room right here. And let's just clear that out and let's put a bed in there uh, and he can live in there. You see, when you make room for the enemy in your life, the things of God are the first to go. When you make room, uh, it's just a little room. It's just a storeroom. But when you make room for the enemy in your own life, then the things of God are the first to go. Do you remember Uh, Just last week, when we read about the people committing to take care of God's house, one of the three commitments was to, once again, use the resources that they had for the caring of God's house. Yet now, the high priest of the people is using God's resources for the enemy's purposes. In what way in your life have you maybe made room for the enemy? What areas of your life have you allowed the enemy to bunk and to make himself at home? What parts of your life, and maybe most of it is the Lord's, but what room, back room, have you made where the enemy could call his own? Is it the room of fear? Is it the room of worry and anxiety? Is it the room of a hot temper? Is it the room of bad language? It's just, it's just, it's just one room all the rest of the the temple, right? The Bible describes you and I as the temple of the living God. Now in the New Testament, is it the room of laziness, the room of bitterness and contempt towards someone else? You see, when you give the enemy an inch, he takes a mile. And so we need to consider our own lives, realizing that the smallest compromises lead to bigger ones. Now, what does Nehemiah do, right? He gets back in town. He says, who is living where? What is going on? And we're told that, that Nehemiah gets back and is upset. Have you guys ever heard of stories? Uh, I know I have of people leaving for vacation. Maybe it's happened to your family coming home and the house is flooded. Right. Or coming home and the house is robbed. I know this happened to my parents just this last year. They were you know, they had this great vacation in their RV. They were so excited about it. And then, you know, that feeling like you're so excited to get home. You're like, man, I just want to lay in my own bed. And even as you enter your city, it just you start feeling relaxed because vacation is fun. but You want to get back home. And then you get back home and imagine that the house is being flooded or you realize that the house was burglarized. And it's just like, oh, man. And we're told that this was kind of Nehemiah's experience. Right? I'm sure he was so excited to get back and and see how the people were doing. You know, he invested so much into this, but, you know, he had duties back to the king of Persia. And then he comes back and the first thing he hears is that Tobiah is living where? The, the one who didn't want us to build the walls is now living in the protection of the walls. Well, what are we told? The, the text tells us that Nehemiah goes straight to the storeroom and throws out all of Tobiah's stuff on the street. He commands the room to be cleaned up and cleansed for the purposes of God. And he says, put everything back the way it was there because we need everything there for the worship of Almighty God see, what we have here is a picture of how God is toward the compromising believer. The one who really does follow Christ, but compromises in their commitments. Nehemiah is a picture of how God is towards you or I that might be compromising. Well, how, how is he? Well, I want you to look to the screen at Ephesians chapter 4. And I want you to note down that compromise grieves God. All right? Compromise to our commitments grieves God. You see, what was taking place was not a mistake. It was an intentional move on the part of Eli and the religious leadership, saying we are going to intentionally remove things that have to do with the worship of God, and we're going to allow room for the enemy stay. And when we do that in our life, not just a mistake, right? A compromising believer is not someone who sins. We all sin, but it is someone who practices sin where now this is a, you have no problem with it. You're comfortable with it. And the Bible describes that when we compromise, we grieve the heart of God. Look in your Bibles and then we'll read the verse, but we're told verse 8 that Nehemiah records that it grieved him bitterly. It wasn't just that he was mad, though he was, uh, and he wanted to get things right, but it's that it, it, it hurt him. It was grieving to him. Ephesians 4.30 on the screen says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, meaning that you and I, we can grieve God. Have you guys ever thought about that? that when we live in a way of compromise, we can grieve. It means that God, it it, it, it is referred to as hurt, right? Uh, as if, you know, we think of grief as in when someone loses someone and it causes heartache, right? That we can give heartache to God. Now, it's incredible that God would even allow himself uh, to feel that way, but the Bible describes it for us. But not only does it grieve God, but God also wants to cleanse us from compromise. We read in John chapter 2 that God desires to clean his temples, right? We see Jesus says, when he made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the Changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. You see, when we compromise in our commitments, it grieves God, but God also desires to make things right in our life. The New Testament describes you and I, as believers in Jesus, as the temples of the living God. And if you have given in your life, a consistent place for the devil allowed Jesus to come in and clean house. And so we see that the first compromise was that they made room, intentional room for the enemy. Let's look at the second one, and we find this in verses 10 through 14. They compromised by making serving God optional, by making serving optional. If you look at verse 10 in your Bibles, we're told that Nehemiah says, I also realized that the portions for the Levites had not been given them. They weren't getting paid. They weren't being supported. For each of the Levites and the singers who did the work had gone back to his field. So I contended with the rulers and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. You see, what was taking place was this? Imagine here at the church, right? There are uh, there are certain people on staff, right? Uh, the pastoral staff, uh, uh, people that that uh, you know run the front office and, and different things like that. Uh, imagine, let's just say, Pastor Jack, if the church no longer was supporting Pastor Jack financially, uh, and now Pastor Jack had to go and support his family, and so rather than studying and preparing to teach the Word of God he worked a nine to five job uh, doing manual labor. And so he comes Sunday and he's like, I don't have a message for you. And so now because the people were not supporting the church, that the church could not support the religious people. So they, they the, it was a ghost town. That the worship of God was no longer taking place because serving, whether it was by uh, giving money or whether it was by supporting the church and just uh, showing up, uh, for them, the house of God, the temple was being neglected. It's this, it's that the service of God became a low priority. We're told that the house of God was forsaken. Look at uh, what he asked, verse 11. He says, they contended with the rulers. Why is the house of God forsaken? That idea of being forsaken is this, it is to be abandoned and forgot about. That the people seem to get so busy And wrapped up in their own personal lives that they began forsaking their service to the Lord. And serving the Lord is far too often an area in our own life that we can consider optional, expendable. Well, I'm I'm just so busy right now. I have too much homework. I have too much work. I have too many demands. I I can't stay for two services on Sunday. I can't give my ten dollars. I gotta buy something from the snack bar. And we can we can we we can so easily the first thing to go in our life is well I you know, serving God is optional, so I gotta take care of these other things. And so that is first to go. You see the people they stopped giving. And they stopped caring. God's house at this point, the temple, was the earthly symbol of God's presence to the people. And so when they neglected the temple and they didn't care about the lights being on, they didn't care about the the Levites being supported, that what they were doing was forsaking and neglecting God. And so what about in your own life? Have you neglected serving God in your life? Is God on the back burner in your life? Is He the first thing to go when things get busy? When things get crazy? He shouldn't be. And for Nehemiah, his response was to reappoint those who would be faithful to the ministry. If you look at the very end of verse 13, The very end of verse 13, it says, for they were considered faithful and their task was to distribute to their brethren. That he simply comes in, he says, you won't do the job, then we're gonna appoint new people. And what was also happening in this, not only were they not being supported, but the people who were in a sense working at the temple, they wanted to go make, it seems like more money somewhere else. They went back to the field to do their own thing. Uh, And so Nehemiah appoints new people. I want you guys to all understand something. All of us are expendable in the work of God. That word is meaning that God doesn't have to use us. He wants to use us. So if for us, if God has something for you to do and you say, "Ah, I'm a little busy right now, God will simply go to the next person who is willing. And that's, that's scary for me. You see, I don't want to get to heaven and realize God says, yeah, I gave you the opportunity, but you were really consumed in something else that really didn't matter. And so you, you missed it. And so I went to the next person. You see, God is looking, remember, for faithful and willing people. And he will simply find others to do what he would want to do through us. You see, if we don't answer the call, if we don't step out in faith, God says, okay, I'll go to the next person. Now, it doesn't mean we're done for life. But serving God should never be optional. Make sense? Okay, so the third thing we're looking at of, of how they compromise, it just keeps getting worse for Nehemiah. He goes to the next thing, right? He's serving, he's excited to see people and he's like, what else is happening? What else is going on? The third way they compromised was by making self first. They were making themselves first. They were putting selfishness above obedience, They were putting selfishness above obedience. Well, how were they doing this? Well, let's keep reading. We'll look at verse 15 in your Bibles. Are you guys good? You guys tracking, following along? All right, cool. Uh, In those days, verse 15, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath. They were working. And bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine and grapes and figs and all kinds of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. Men of Tyre dwelt there also, who brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, What evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? Did did not your fathers do thus? And did not God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And so Nehemiah confronts them. You see, the people's focus was on the here and now. It was on get, get, get. Their perspective was off. They gave room for the enemy. They neglected the service of God. And then they began to disobey God for their own self gain. The Sabbath law is a pretty clear law that God gave them. Like, it's not too complicated. It's pretty clear, simple. Don't work and rest one day a week. Work hard six days. On the seventh, don't trade. Don't make money. Spend time with me. The Pharisees made it confusing, but this is a great commandment. This was a a commandment. God says, take a break. Uh, It really shows the heart of God for us, yet this would mean One less day of business. It would mean, and that would have an appearance that you would miss out on the great trade of that day. It would have the appearance of, well, I'm not gonna be as successful. It's not gonna be as efficient. I'll work harder and just work through the Sabbath. It's such a simple and beneficial command to keep, yet they couldn't contain their desire for more. And yet by doing this, they would receive less in the long run. And so Nehemiah responds just like he was with the other two circumstances to the people. He responds them, and, and we didn't read it, uh, but this passage in verses 15 through 20, 22, he reminds them, he says, your actions were the very reason that we had to go in captivity in the first place. The very reason the walls were burned and we had to rebuild them was because your ancestors would not obey God during the Sabbath and you're doing the same thing. Isn't it interesting how quickly we forget about the consequences of our sin? Right? There can be a moment where we sin against God and there's a consequence on this side of eternity, Right, in trouble with parents, uh, grounded, whatever it might be. And then you know maybe some time passes and you're like, huh, You know, the the, the consequence just kind of doesn't seem as bad as it was in the moment. And so we just, we compromise again. And then you're like, oh yeah, that was bad. That consequence is terrible. The result of this is horrible. Uh, Yet for them, they they forget so quickly. And so we're told that Nehemiah shuts down the gates, that he says, no, no one is trading on the Sabbath. Shut the gates. If, If other people of other nations come and try to trade with us on that day, tell them to take a hike. Tell them to take a walk. And so again, we see example of how God deals with the compromising believer. He reminds them. He says, do you remember where your sin got you the first time? And then he also helps them, right? He's the one that, that goes to the, the edge of the, of the city and, and closes the gates and, 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 and helps them, assists them so that they stop sinning in their lives. Now, does anyone remember last week, we had those three points of commitment, right? One was, uh, was money for the support of the temple and the other one was time. And there's one more that we're about to look at. Remember remember, time that they, that they committed saying, we're gonna keep the Sabbath. Well, we see that they fail and compromise in this very area. All right, let's look at the fourth and final one today. Uh, and it is this, that they fail They compromise by mixing with the world. By mixing with the world. And we see this in the rest of the chapter. They begin to intermix with the world and the ways of the world. And this was their their probably greatest compromise. Look at verse 23. You guys have your Bibles open? All right. Verse 23. It says, In those days I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, foreign countries who not only were not worshipers of God, but no doubt hated God. And this, these nations were known as even uh, being uh, attacking God's people. Verse 24, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. Uh, and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke concerning the language of the other people. So what was happening? Nehemiah starts talking around. He's like, he starts talking to some children, and they can't even talk back to him in Hebrew. That what had happened over the last 12 years is they began marrying these other, other people, and that wasn't the biggest issue, though it was big. But what we see here is they began to adopt the culture. They began to to move and live in the ways that the world did things and no longer the ways that God did things. Where now even the languages of the children are different, okay? Look at verse 25. What does he do about it? So I contended with them and cursed them. It's not that he cursed at them, but that he reminded them of the blessing and curse that they entered into in their commitment and struck some of them. Yeah, he hit them. And pulled out their hair and made them swear by God saying, You shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Did not Solomon, the king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations there was no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. Should we then hear of your doing of all this great evil transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women. So far, the people had compromised in two thirds of their commitments, in their money, in their time. And now, does anyone remember the third one? Yeah, their family, right? They begin now compromising in the most important one, which is their family. The people yet again begin to marry into cultures, and religions, and the idea, again, is this, that they started to integrate the things of the world so much so that it pushed out the things of God, and that's what happens. When you begin to integrate, to put into your life things and the ways that the world does things, uh, it pushes out the ways of the Lord. That's why it's dangerous. That's why we need to be aware. This is what happens, that their holiness and purity became compromised. They weren't following God's design for their lives. They started to mix the things of the world with the things of the Lord, and they simply don't mix. They don't do it. And we see for them, it began to consume them. And once again, we see Nehemiah as an example of how God deals with the believer who compromises. Uh, it's pretty interesting, right? Nehemiah begins hitting the people, <laughs> slapping them upside the head, pulling out their hair. And now what does this show us? Now, do we need to do that? Like if, if you have a, a brother or, or sister as you get older and they, they marry an unbeliever, should you slap them upside the head? Well, maybe, but, but, but it's not that we should go pulling out people's hair who are compromised in their commitments. But what does this show us? It shows us how much God hates sin. It shows us how serious he takes it. You know, we so often talk about the love of God, and so we should. But how often do we discuss Psalm chapter 7 that talks about how God is a just judge who is angry with the wicked every single day. That there are seven abominations that God hates. and, And there are. There are things that God hates and he takes very seriously. And we see for Nehemiah, he sought to bring discipline to the people. We know that God brings discipline to our life. Listen, if if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you're living in a way that's practicing sin and you have no conviction and no regret, Like, it's like, yeah, I just, this is what I do. God's word says I shouldn't, but I do it. And I don't really feel bad about it. You should be very concerned that you are even a believer. See, God brings discipline to those whom he loves. I just want you to note down this passage and look at it at your own uh, leisure and convenience. But Hebrews chapter 12, verse five through 11, talks about the discipline of God and talks about basically that if you are someone who gets away with their sin, that you can practice something uh, that's against what God has said on a daily, weekly basis, and it just kind of, oh yeah, it's just who I am, it's just part of my life, Uh, then it shows that you are an illegitimate son or daughter of God. It means that you're not really his. You might be around the church, you might be around people who are God's, but if you have never experienced the conviction, and then God sometimes, yes, allows us to even be disciplined he does it for our, our, uh, our benefit, our growth. God does not allow the believer who follows Him, and even even if there's parts of uh, their compromised life to stay that way. Uh, he, he he doesn't he doesn't allow it. Uh, he, will, he will allow you to to feel the sting of your sin. And so the question today is, so what are you actively doing to follow through with your commitments to Christ? Are there areas, and I want you to think about your life, really think about your life. Think about your your week and the things that you do or don't do. Are there areas in your own life that you've compromised? And maybe it's just a small back room that no one really even knows about, but that you've made room for the enemy in your life. Or maybe it's something in regards to neglecting the service of God. Some area where you may have committed to in the past that you can think back a year ago, six months ago, and you committed that your life would be different. But where is that commitment today? Well, as we draw closer to Jesus, that commitment should deepen and increase. An awesome thing is that what we had talked about Even if you're in a state of compromise, that you can start that cycle. Remember the cycle of conviction and confession and commitment? Start it again and allow God to begin to work in your life. As we we begin to bring this to a close, I want you to notice one last thing about this chapter. And I want you to notice Nehemiah's four prayers. We didn't read them. Uh, and simply for the sake of time, because it's a pretty bulky chapter. But in four verses, after each of the circumstances that he uh, encounters, right? He, when he realizes, man, they're compromising in this area and, and, and in compromising in this area, he ends kind of each of those, those situations with the prayer. And it's a prayer to God. He says, remember me. He says, remember me. Think about Nehemiah's frustration. He must have been upset, grieved, we're told. And sometimes in our life, we can be, maybe not the people that are compromising, but the sight of Nehemiah. We can be frustrated with other people's sin. And even though we don't see things going in the way that we hoped or expected, you see, God sees the work that we put in, and it's not for nothing. You see, in your life, there will be times when you pour in and invest into other people and they, they compromise. I can think of junior high students who I've poured into and taught the word of God and prayed for and wanted so much to follow Jesus and then they leave, right? They, they go to high school and it's a good thing. And then they might, even some now that are out, of, out, of, out into college and, and I might still follow them on social media or they follow me and I just see that they're compromised, right? And it's just like, man, was the work worth it? And I think it's interesting that Nehemiah says, remember me. You see, we need to trust God with the results and know that the people that we invest into and we serve, uh, and maybe it's those, those children in children's ministry for some of you, those little five-year-olds that you're teaching little lessons about God, and you're just there to make sure they don't kill each other and and you just want so much for them. And then you, maybe, you, maybe later in life, you'll see that maybe, man, they, they're not following through on those little commitments that they made. We're to trust God with the results and trust that he will remember the, the commitment that we've made. And so the people compromised in the three areas that they committed to. Now, I don't want you to get this wrong. An uncompromised life is not a perfect one. It is one in a pursuit to please God. A compromised life is one who doesn't mess up and sin and then get back up into the fight. A compromised life is to sin and to stay in it. I want you to note down the difference between a compromised and an uncompromised life is practice and pursuit. That a compromised believer practices sin, it's consistent, it's habitual, it's weekly, it's daily, where a, an uncompromised life may sin, may fall short at times and will. But then there's this getting back up and pursuing and there's this brokenness, right? All the stuff that we've talked about in the last handful of weeks. And so as we close this book, I want you guys to know that the end of chapter 13, everyone look at the very last verse in chapter 13 and not for the sake of the verse, uh, but I, w- I wanna tell you in a moment. The very last verse in chapter 13 is the last recorded words historically of the Old Testament. Uh, most scholars believe that it would be chapter 13 that then kicks off a 400-year period of silence, that there are 400 years to about, from about this is about 430-something uh, B.C., And for the next 400 years, there's no written authoritative word of God. There's no prophets being sent. Malachi is the last prophet that many people think would have happened during that 12-year absence of Nehemiah. And what we have for the next 400 years is silence from God until the Messiah, until Jesus. There is this downward spiral of sin and this consistent pattern that shows this need for the Messiah. Isn't it interesting that God closes out the Old Testament on a negative note, on a bad note? The Old Testament ends in a very bad note. The people are left compromised and they continue to compromise for the next 400 years. And what we have is a, I believe, an arrow, arrow that points to Jesus. That without Jesus, this is what we are left to, broken promises and commitments But with Jesus, with Jesus, he's able to see us through. And even in those compromises, he's able to cover and and cleanse those sins. And so what we have here at the end of Nehemiah is an arrow that points to the need for the Messiah. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you. We thank you for this book that we have been studying, that we've been learning from and looking to. And we love that it, that it ends with this arrow that points to our need for you. That even if, if apart from Jesus, we have all the desire to commit, but no power to fulfill. Lord, we know that in Christ, it is you who lives in us. We think of the words of Paul that says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And I no longer live for myself. Lord, it, and we would, wanna, we would wanna say that prayer. We wanna recite that scripture that is no longer us, it's you in us. And so we look to you for all these things. We pray that you would do a great work in our own life, in our own heart. Lord, if there's anything that needs to be cleansed today, that you would throw out the stuff of the enemy that's had its hold and you'd come in and you'd cleanse us, you'd strengthen us and you'd set us on the path that you desire for us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.